going to therapy. Just just go to therapy. Like everybody should go to therapy. <laughs> I, yeah. I think every pastor in America should go to therapy at least once a month just yeah. to process stuff. Like the, this vicarious trauma thing that you hear thrown around is very true. When you're in a helping profession, let's, let's stop talking about pastors for a minute. A teacher, a social worker, a police officer, a fireman, when you are living through other people's trauma with them in real time, that stuff sticks to you. And it might take a week, it might take a month, it might take 10 years, but eventually that stuff is going to start kind of oozing and growing and, and becoming your own trauma. And so, man, going at least semi-regularly to therapy is, is huge. I, so I don't go every week anymore. I go monthly. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like I've kind of come through the, the deepest, darkest, hardest part of recovery. I'll always be recovering, but Mm -hmm. I go once a month now and it's more proactive than reactive anymore, but I'll always go to therapy. That's Steve Austin. And I'm Brian Falchuk. The Do A Day Podcast. Will you hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned? I'm your host, Brian Falchuk. I know because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do A Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Hey, day doers. Welcome to another episode of the Do A Day Podcast. Thank you for joining me on the show. My guest today is really an amazing human being, a great guy. You will feel his energy and his positivity right off the bat. And what will surprise you right off the bat is to learn that he's a survivor of a suicide attempt. This is Steve Austin, who was a preacher or pastor in, uh, I wouldn't say in a past life because it's still tied to who he is, but he's also a survivor of sexual abuse when he was incredibly young. So if that is a topic that maybe you're not ready to listen to, or it's difficult to hear, or you have an audience and it's not appropriate for them, you know, a bit of a warning. Um, He certainly talks about it in a very respectful way, but still, maybe it's not something that you want to be playing out loud or aren't really in the place to listen to right now. So a warning on that. Maybe this is an episode for another time for you. I do hope you listen because Steve has a beautiful message of his own process of uh, coming into connection with what happened to him, how it impacted his life, how the way that he was taught to behave and how to relate to difficult emotions and difficult experiences was ingrained in him, led him to suppress and hold within until it became too much. And he saw himself as a burden on the lives around him and didn't feel that his life should continue. And luckily, he didn't succeed in taking his life. And the process that ensued after that, around speaking out, around being vulnerable, around being honest and a a true person, is what brought him into the beauty that you're going to get to hear on the show and part of the key message that he has today. So I want to get into this episode. I don't want to hold back. Steve is an amazing human being. I really appreciated talking to him. He just has this kindness about him, this appreciation, um, this smile that you can hear in his voice. It's contagious. Like to be able to talk about such a heavy subject, well, several heavy subjects, and still feel positivity, I think that speaks volumes to who Steve is and 
to the possibility we all have for that positivity in our life. So with that, let's jump into this episode with Steve Austin. Steve Austin, thanks so much for joining me in the show. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we, we have to start with a shout out to Michelle Bronson for making the connection. She and I are just on the same wavelength. And the day we're recording this is the day that her episode on the show comes out, which is kind of ironic. Just oh, perfect. That way. She's um, great. She is. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, so I'm very thankful. And, and as soon as she told me even like half a sentence about you, I'm like, look, Michelle, you know what I'm looking for. You know, it would be a great guest. So the answer is yes, but wow. <laughs> um, yeah, you're, I mean, your, your story, the little bit she gave me did give me pause. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to, to hear more. Well, thanks. I'm happy to share. It's always my honor. Before we uh, dive into the backstory and, and what you've been through to, to bring you to today, give us a little bit of an overview of who you are in this moment. Like, what are the, the things that you're working on right now? Sure. Uh, number one, I'm working on being a really good family man. I am a dad to two little ones. So Ben is about to turn eight and Caroline is five going on 35. <laughs> Holy cow. And, uh, and I've been married to Lindsay for 12 years. Right. And so, uh, so that is, is number one priority for me. It was not always that way. If I'm being totally honest, yeah. it was all about yeah. building a name for myself. Mm. Um, so that's huge. Um, and then, and right after that is the work that I'm doing. And so I am uh, really passionate about uh, helping people who live at the intersection of faith and ill health. And so I uh, have written a few books, got a couple more coming out. Uh, I have a podcast as well, Catching Your Breath, which is monthly, and uh, I'm a life coach and spiritual director and an inspirational speaker, and um, man, I just love people. I just love people and connecting with overwhelmed people and helping them feel a little less alone. Yeah. Tell me, tell me um, well, first of all, I have to recognize, was it five going on 35? Yes. Congratulations on missing those tough teenage years. <laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> uh, be like, no, that was like three months old, was like 14. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to see those silver linings. Um, you said something that, that really just hit me is this intersection. You said faith and go, go over that again to blow, get, get into that a little bit more. Sure. Yeah. So, so my story is um, that I've come to know God best as I've recovered from a suicide attempt. So I was a pastor uh, when I nearly died by suicide seven years ago last month. And so healing from what I call my very worst day um, has caused me to wrestle through the the pain of becoming more authentic. And as I've continued to recover and heal, I'm now at a place where I'm inviting other people to join me on this journey of discovering their true self and uh, learning that you can... I, I grew up in very charismatic circles of the Christian faith. So mm. uh, charismatic, Pentecostal, the Holy Ghost, Brian. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, it's, it's I look... image people have when they think about like in a tent, that, that pastor who's just got everyone kind of spellbound. Is that, is that what, what we're thinking here? Okay. Falling out in the spirit, speaking in tongues, Benny Hinn with a white hanky and everybody falls down like all of that. That is not an mm. exaggeration. That's mm. the world of I grew up in. And so in that world, for me, the experience was to be a Christian, you got to have it all together. Mm -hmm. um, 
And also, you should look like us, pray like us, dress like us, act like us, vote like us, you know, behave just there's there's this box that you should fit in. Uh, And anything outside that very tiny box, mm, that's probably on you, you probably got some stuff to work through. And so when it comes to things like mental health, the response in that circle is pray harder, just choose joy to have more faith. Uh, and so it's a, they frame it in this spiritual way when we know that it's very much a medical thing, a yeah. mental thing. You need help from a professional. But there wasn't permission for me growing up uh, to, be, to be a whole person. You could either be a Christian or you could be crazy, which is a terrible mm. word that nobody should use. But you could be one or the other, but you can't there was no integration of your spiritual health and your mental health. And these days I see them as the same thing. So I'm inviting people to take a deep breath and let's learn how to integrate those worlds together. Well, um, I mean, I'm very much kind of going off movies and TV as a, as a Jewish guy from the Northeast. I come on with it. (laughs) I've got to channel, uh, you know, the, the media versions of it, but, um, not fitting in, not aligning. Yeah. It's it's not, um, I think if people haven't lived through that sort of feeling of being an other, yeah, it's a lot more impactful than it may sound. And this notion of, can't you just like, ah, just pray harder, just be this, just be that, just get over it. Yeah. Um, I always say when you hear that word, just, you know, alarm should be going off for you. There's something very wrong with what you're about to hear and very dismissive and invalidating. Yes. Yeah. When you feel invisible while you're surrounded by people who are supposed to care for you, people who are supposed to see you, that's the most, that's just like the worst feeling in the world. So, mm-hmm. and, and when it happens inside the church, right? And inside these church, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm here in Birmingham, Alabama. There's a church on every corner. Yeah. And, and so you see that classic come as you are on the church sign and the cross on the steeple, and then you get inside and the message doesn't match. Mm. It, it is very disheartening. It's really disappointing. Come as we are. It's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We say yeah. come as you are, but we're going to give you like two weeks to get it together. Uh, let us know what committee you want to serve on. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it, there's a lot of work to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course it's well-intentioned and it comes from a place of love, but it's, it's gone down a path of, you know, sort of fitting in and sameness. So when, yeah. when did these feelings, like, were you aware of this as you're growing up? Did this really just rear its head seven years ago or a bit before that? Like, when did, when did you start to realize that this wasn't fitting or, or that you were struggling? Sure. So yeah, that, that answer definitely requires some backstory. So yeah. I was um, sexually abused when I was a preschooler. Oh. And, um, my parents, um, in they were extremely young, very, very, very young when they had me, and so still very young. And when I'm a preschooler, and they, um, they discovered what had happened at bath time. I was still that little, and um, they thought that the best thing to do would be not to involve the police and social workers and all that. Here's this tiny little boy. This has happened one time. He's never going to remember it again. It was. Um, the perpetrator was the the teenage boy that lived across the street. And so um, 
they threatened this kid within an inch of his life, told him never to come back on our property again. They also knew that his dad was a raging alcoholic mm-hmm. and they were, we, we lived in very tiny rural Alabama and, um, you know, everybody knows everybody and knows everybody's stories. And so they just thought, you know, this is going to be this much worse. Yes, this is a horrible thing, but this little boy is never going to remember this. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, so my parents and I've had to work through that and we have, and, and I love my parents I have great parents. They drop the ball in this situation. Um, and we're real clear on that. And so I, when I tell that story that, Hey, I forgive them, we've moved on. I also feel I have to say, if you're a parent of a little one and something like this happens, my God, call in the big dogs, call the police, yeah. you know, get CPS involved, that sort of thing. Yeah. That being said, um, they were right for a long time. I didn't remember. I had my first flashback when I was a senior in high school. So I was, um, involved in every club imaginable and leading stuff and president of this and most likely to succeed and all that stuff. Um, this kid who's on top of the world, full ride scholarship, all of that. And we're on this leadership field trip. We would take a field trip once a month, this, um, leadership forum that I was a part of. They picked a couple of students per high school in the district. And once a month we would go on a a field trip to a different, um, business or government agency in the area and sort of learn about leadership in real life. Hmm. And so this particular day, we're at the Department of Human Resources, which would be Child Protective Services and other places or something like that. And the director comes in. We're all sitting around this long conference room table. And the director of the program comes in and she talks about what happens when a child has been abused or neglected. And she brings out one of the dolls that they would use when a child has been victimized. And if a child is too small or they've been so traumatized that they don't have language for what happened, they would point to, you know, where they've been hit or abused or what, whatever has happened. They would point yeah. on this doll. And all of a sudden, here I am, 17, on top of the world, got it together. And I start having what I know now as a flashback. But at the time, it was flashes of memory. I felt like I was having a nightmare and I was wide awake. I'm seeing and hearing and smelling things. And I'm, I'm sitting here at this conference room table with my peers and chaperones. I'm thinking, I'm losing my mind. Oh my God, here we go. 17, I'm done for. And my heart's racing. I've got a knot in the pit of my stomach. Hands are sweating. All these classics. I think I'm having a heart attack. And so I know enough to get out of the room. I don't want my friends to see me freaking completely out. I get in the hall and I just slide down this cold block wall and one of the chaperones comes out and uh, she's one of the teachers and is trying to process with me what's going on because nobody has seen me like this. I'm, I'm not the kid who loses it. Steve, did you, did you, sorry to cut in, but did you? No, you're good. So I know this is where you have a flashback, but did you have zero knowledge? Like active? Okay. Zero. So it's not like you know something happened, you've been suppressing it. No. It's become more real. You, you, nope. You didn't know about it. Okay. All of this stuff is happening in my mind. I'm seeing and hearing, not, not seeing and hearing things like I'm, you know, psychosis, but but I'm, I feel like I'm having a, a nightmare and I'm wide awake. Yeah. And so I'm trying to explain this stuff. And uh, this is way over my teacher's pay grade. Yeah, yeah. Right. And she, so she does what any good teacher in the South in the late 90s does. And she says, why don't you go to the bathroom and splash some water on your face yeah. and come back? 
And so I get home finally that afternoon and I'm explaining what happened to my mom and my mom and I were incredibly close. And, uh, it's the first time that I ever remember her not making eye contact with me. And she starts crying. She's very upset because she realizes, Oh my God, we were wrong. She knows. Yeah. Yeah. We were wrong. He does remember. Holy cow. Um, and so we're still in this very charismatic Pentecostal world and we pray about it. And we don't talk about it again for another 12 years. Wow. And so, yeah, so from senior in high school to 29 suicide attempt, the, the mental illness is becoming more pronounced. The anxiety is through the roof. The depression is every day. The flashbacks are growing more and more common. Um, but we didn't talk about mental health. And so I'm serving as a pastor. I'm also, uh, I'm bivocational. I'm working in a school at the same time and trying desperately to keep anyone from knowing the struggles that I'm dealing with, because I thought the worst thing in the world would be for someone to know that you're not okay. Yeah. So, so you're not yeah, even, it got you're worse not talking worse. to anyone privately. You're not seeking no, help on your own. No aside. one ever suggested counseling, therapy, none of that. I was 25, had my first flashback at work. I was working overnights at a 911 call center, one of the oh. most high stress jobs that there is. Yeah, I mean, Steve, you're putting yourself in the middle of the fire with all this. <laughs> it was a great plan. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I had my first flashback at work and the director of, of that agency was also a paramedic EMT. And she said, dude, you're having a panic attack. You got to go home. You got to go to the doctor. Don't come back until you do. We love you, but we need you healthy. Yeah. And it's the first time anyone had said, you should go to the doctor. You should be talking to someone. You should get on medication at 25. Oh. Yeah. So, um, so I did, I, I finally got on meds at 25 and it helped for a while, but, but it just, things just continued to get worse. And so 29, um, I, it was just at a, at a, I don't know, at a boiling point, I was working a contract job out of town for a couple of weeks, staying in a hotel room. And if you know anything about depression, the worst thing you can do when you're really depressed is isolate yourself. Yeah. Depression and isolation, just it's, it's a deadly cocktail. Which is what a lot of people in that situation exactly do. Yes, the shame of it yeah. makes you pull away. Oh my God, I don't want anybody to see me like this. I just want to stay in the bed. I don't want to go out. I don't even want to go check the mail. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so two weeks of living in this shame spiral. I'd been married five years at this time. We had a baby boy. and. I, the, where it got the worst when, when the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back was when, when I believed the lie that I was a burden on my family, that it would be better for me, better for them if I just disappeared. And so that's exactly what I tried to do. I, I tried to disappear by trying to kill myself and, um, woke up about 24 hours later in an ICU hospital room, two hours from home. And my wife and her best friend were there and spent three days in ICU trying to figure out if my liver was going to survive this whole ordeal. It was, it was medication for me. Yeah. And, um, couldn't feel my legs for the first three days. I was numb from the waist wow. down. Yeah. And, uh, was transferred from ICU to the psych ward, spent a week on the psych ward. And now these last seven years finally have been therapy, marriage counseling, learning how to, um, how to be a whole person. 
Mm. Learning to accept myself as I am, uh, deconstructing a lot of really toxic theology and, uh, and finding uh, a God who's present in the midst of despair and heartache, um, learning to tell the truth for the first time in my life and ask for help and say when I'm not okay, and uh, realizing that vulnerability is not a sign of weakness. Yeah. It's been quite a journey. Yeah. Um, oh, there's so many. So I was going to ask you about you based on the timing that you would have been married. You would have had your first child already. Where, where was your wife in this journey and her knowledge of, cause you, you had already had like that 25 year old panic attack. She was on the scene then, wasn't she? So she, she would have to know something at this point, right? Did you ever talk to her about what happened? So, uh, once the panic attack happened at work, I knew we had to have a conversation because I came home from work. Um, and so we had to have a conversation about it. And she was incredibly supportive. Yeah, go to the doctor. See, you know, there's there's all sorts of stuff, anti-anxiety, anti-depression, all this stuff. I had seen my aunt. So my aunt died by suicide when I was 14. And I had seen her heavily medicated. Mm. And, and that was scary. Um, and heartbreaking. And so that's the image that I had of people who were on medicine for mental health is that you're just totally zoned out, numbed out, disconnected from reality. Yeah. And I didn't want to be that. I was a guy with hustle and grit and drive and I had goals and dreams. And I thought, if I'm on this medication, I'm not going to care about any of that. Yeah. Um, which can seem really true for somebody who's very heavily medicated. Yeah. Um, and so I just thought that was the only option. So Anyway, my wife was incredibly supportive um, and we talked through it. I don't think she realized the depths of the yeah. despair. Um, and, and so what I tell people now, it took me three or four years to realize this, but worse than the depression, the anxiety, the PTSD, worse than all of that combined was the shame of all of it. So Brene Brown, who's just so brilliant mm -hmm. talking about shame and vulnerability and all that, it was, it was the belief that I'm not enough, that I'm not husband enough, I'm not man enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not Christian enough, all those things um, that was, it was so much worse than the mental illness was the shame of it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. You describe your wife as being so supportive. It's almost like she was, but you weren't. You know, you absolutely. Weren't, you weren't ready absolutely. to be supportive of yourself. No, I hated myself. Oh my gosh, I just I wanted it to end. And I, you know, again, you go back to this this small sect of Christianity that I was raised in. You're supposed to be able to take this magic Jesus pill, and mm -hmm. everything's fixed. We believed in miracles, and so when the miracle didn't happen, well, that's on you. It's a sin problem. It's a lack of faith problem, and, and it's shame. Yeah, it's shame. It's shame. fear, shame, and guilt. Absolutely. That's how we keep butts in seats and money in plates. Fear, yeah. shame, and guilt. Well, and I have to imagine adding to the layers of the shame is what your profession is. So you're supposed to be the yeah. perfect one who's so connected oh, yeah. to God and the one that others turn to. You wouldn't need to turn to anyone yourself because you're directly connected to God. You don't, you have that, you know, you don't have anyone you need to turn to because you're okay. You're supported. Yeah. Yep. Um, that's exactly right. Even raising the stakes further for saying something. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah we, we don't allow pastors to be human. 
That mm. is absolutely the truth. We expect them to be the expert in all things. Uh, we expect, I mean, you just think about it. You're, you're running a, a business, essentially. You're running an organization. You're the CEO of the church. Yeah. You're also teaching, likely Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You're visiting at the hospital. You're performing wedding ceremonies, baptisms, you're, uh, you're facilitating church disputes. You're, you're supposed to be doing all these things and never complaining and probably raising a family and trying to have a successful marriage, you know, all this stuff and you can't ever complain about it. Yeah. So it's, uh, oh man, I feel for pastors today. It's such an interesting debate that I hear people getting into is whether someone who has or has not been through whatever you're going through has the right to help you. You you get the people who are like, well, they wouldn't understand. They've never been through it. So, you know, they can't help me. And then the other side is like, well, they're failures too. Just like me, why would I turn to them? Mm. You know, and it's, it's like, maybe we're interpreting this wrong that both of those people could help, but the one who's been through the tough time and, and maybe fallen themselves or struggles themselves, no one's perfect. So maybe you need to interpret their situation differently. Yeah, I, I think when we when we strip away the titles, when we strip away the expectations, when we just strip away the theology for a moment, like pull away all that, whatever you think about the divine or mystery or any of that, and realize that we, at the end of the day, we're human. Before you're a father, a mother, a Republican, a Democrat, black, white, whatever, you're a human being first. Mm. And because of that, we're all going to struggle. We're all going to suffer, to get really Buddhist here, but (laughs) we're all going to suffer. I mean, Jesus said the same thing. It's not just Buddhist. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But we skip over that and get to the, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We want to get to that. We want like Christmas morning, Easter Sunday, but we want to skip over the Good Fridays in our lives. We want to skip over that silent Saturday where everybody's going, what's going to happen here, right? Mm. We want to skip over all that stuff and get to just give me the good, just give me the happy. Look at what social media has done. Now, look, I love social media. I live on social media. But social media, if you're not healthy, can be so detrimental if you believe the lie of social media. If you believe the lie of Instagram, that the shiny Israel, the flashy Israel, my new baby, my new house, my new car, my new boyfriend, my new engagement ring. If you believe that that is real life for that person, right? If you compare what you know about yourself on the inside to what you don't know about somebody else, all you see is what they show you and you think that's real. Oh my gosh, it can cause so much shame. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. I, I, I want to go back for just a moment around your, your aunt or your aunt. Sure. Uh, did you, did, was there any discussion after she passed of what happened? I mean, uh, I get the feeling it was kind of, not spoken is that what happened with that because that that was one place where maybe you could have seen that like it's okay to talk about what happened so that we can avoid it repeating itself but was it just sort of not really discussed yeah so um my god that was one of the worst days of our lives one of the worst days of my life that it's been my goodness, it's been 22 years. It was the 30th of June. Mm. And um, we were building a, a new house. We had gone over to check on the new construction, our new house. 
And um, this was before everybody had a cell phone in their pocket. Yeah. My dad worked for the, uh, for the city, he was a, a career fireman. And it, so my mom and I and my little brothers were, were just sort of walking through this new construction and a police car pulled up and said, you need to get to the fire station. Uh, there's been an emergency. You need to call your parents. And mom knew immediately um, what had happened. And so we drove down to the fire station. She called, got my grandparents. And I just remember her screaming, my sister, and the phone swinging out and slamming against that block wall. Yeah. And she'd been missing for three days. Oh. And um, yeah, middle of the summer in Alabama, she um, hooked a, a hose to the exhaust and went to sleep. Mm. And what stands out to me are the days immediately following her death. Um, the questions, the whispers at the funeral. The biggest question our family had is, is she in hell? Mm-hmm. And now I look and I go, she was in hell. She, yeah. she was living in hell. So people ask me that now knowing, you know, my role as a former pastor now as a church consultant, and I still speak in churches and, you know, very passionate about this faith and mental health thing. People ask me that what happens if you die by suicide? <laughs> the truth is, if you're to that point where you're going to die by suicide, you're not scared of whatever might happen in the afterlife. You've, you're already living in a living hell. So um, did we talk about it? We talked about it um, from that standpoint. What happened? I remember having, having a sit down, a family meeting with the associate pastor from our church and wanting to know what happens to someone's soul if they kill themselves. And I think it's the wrong question. I think we have to be asking the question, what do we do to prevent this? How do we help? How do we include people in the conversations, in our faith communities? How do we break this stigma so that people who are desperate for help and hope will reach out and get it? So I think we're, I think we're asking the wrong questions. Well, sure. I mean, we're asking an after the fact question. What are you going to do about it now? And, and the only yeah. thing that might come of that is, oh, maybe some people will be too scared then to commit suicide. And to your point, yeah, it's past that point for them. Yeah, maybe no, we need, we need to yeah. talk about it. We need to talk, what do you do when you're having suicidal ideation? So, yeah. you know, we talked about it for some period of time. Um, and now we, we don't talk about it. Her birthday's yeah. marked on the calendar at my mom's house. Yeah. Um, but life has mostly moved on. She was my favorite aunt. She was, yeah. she was one of my favorite humans. She was larger than life. Um, like so many are, you know, you think of the Robin Williams. Yeah. Um, we stop and visit her grave every once in a while, but no, we don't talk about it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that's unfortunate. I think we should talk about it. Do you think she's your favorite because there was a connection there that obviously didn't, didn't rear its head for a while? Absolutely. I, I was a, a very intuitive kid, um, deeply feeling kind of person. Um, and so I think the woundedness in me recognized the woundedness in her mm. for sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We, we just always, and we had a, I don't know, it was a very special connection. She yeah. was an incredible person. She must've seen it in you as well. Probably. There was yeah, that, probably so. You understand her in a way that other people can't. Yeah. Or, or won't. Yeah. Um, so Steve, how do you, how do you go from 
that process and, and learning vulnerability. And I'm so glad you connected it with that word weakness because we do associate that with being weak because now we can be hurt. And if you're hurt, yeah. you're weak. But it has, yeah. it has nothing to do with strength or being hurt. It's a, a word that unfortunately, has, I feel, has been sort of misappropriated to imply that where actually it's about human connection. Yeah. And about damaging each other. Yeah. Um, how do you move into this next phase? And, and I was going to ask you if you're still a pastor, because maybe there's a disconnect now. Yeah, I, I don't see myself, at least in this season, I, I, I'm tempted to say ever, but at least in this season, I don't see myself serving uh, in any kind of a full-time capacity. Yeah. I love what I get to do today, which is educate, encourage, empower the church to do better. Um, you know, we have a conversation like you and I are having right now and you go, wow, this is really honest. And, and for some people who don't know me and know the work that I do, there would be this tendency to go, wow, he hates the church. Mm. Furthest thing from the truth. Mm. Um, I do not think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, there's a baby in there. I think that we should educate ourselves. I think we should be very honest that we have dropped the ball when it comes to sitting with people in despair, when it comes to just the gift of presence. Like somebody dies, let's say, let's say you can't fathom what it would be like to live with mental illness. Fine. Let's say you lose somebody in a tragic accident we will grieve with you. We're going to bring food to your house. We're going to show up at the funeral. We're going to visit at the hospital. We're going to do all those things for a couple of weeks. And then there's sort of this unspoken rule that it's kind of time to get it together and move on. Yeah. But what do you do when the person can't? What do you do when that grief lasts for years? Or what do you do with the person who has chronic illness, fibromyalgia, uh, I don't know, arthritis, something, something chronic? What do you do with that person? We don't typically do really well at serving them, at including them, at making them feel safe and seen and heard. So my role today is, is educating the church and saying, hey, we've dropped the ball here. We've got to do better. And here's how we do better. Hmm. So I, I love what I get to do these days. And what about yourself? So it's been, it's been several years. What did you do other than just the counseling, what are some of the specific things that kind of, did you have something that you point to as like, that was one of my key unlocks. That was one of the things that helped me understand that I can open up, that it's safe, that support is a better thing than feeling like I'm burdening people if I speak up. Mm, yeah. I think one of the biggies for me, um, I had been so public, uh, you know, I didn't have some massive platform, but I'd been so public with my story. I'd been blogging for years, uh, podcasting. I had a radio show a couple nights a week in Birmingham for a call-in show for teenagers. Um, everything I did was, you know, on the blog, on the, on the radio show, in social media. And so learning boundaries with what is public and what isn't or what is public right now and what might be public later. Like you don't have to share every struggle you're walking through right now in this moment. Maybe you get some help for it. Maybe you heal from it. Maybe you share about it in hindsight. Um, that was important. Other thing that was really important was learning inner circle friends and sort of outer circle friends who, who are those, um, get ready for a nineties reference. Who are those ride or die homies <laughs> that you can tell 
anything to that are always safe, um, that are not going to judge you, that are going to greet you with empathy and compassion and also be empowered to tell you the truth. Mm. Hey, dude, I'm really worried about you right now. Hey, this is reminding me of, uh, you know, hey, I'm seeing a few red flags. So having that really tight, close-knit inner circle that you can lean on, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, it's so important. Um, Going to therapy, just just go to therapy. Like everybody should go to therapy. (laughs) I, I think every pastor in America should go to therapy at least once a month just to process stuff like that. This vicarious trauma thing that you hear thrown around is very true. When you're in a helping profession, let's, let's stop talking about pastors for a minute, a teacher, a social worker, a police officer, a fireman, when you are living through other people's trauma with them in real time, that stuff sticks to you. And it might take a week, it might take a month, it might take 10 years, but eventually that stuff is going to start kind of oozing and growing and, and becoming your own trauma. And so, man, going at least semi-regularly to therapy is, is huge. I, so I don't go every week anymore. I go monthly. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like I've kind of come through the the deepest, darkest, hardest part of recovery. I'll always be recovering. But mm. I go once a month now and it's more proactive than reactive anymore. But I'll always go to therapy. Yeah. I, I do think it, it is, um, if, if people can get, well, it's the vulnerability point. If you can get past the sense of having to be perfect and strong no matter what, because that's the role you're in, some sort of helper or supporter including therapists, actually, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Uh, if your therapist isn't seeing someone... <laughs> what, yeah. <laughs> they're probably not super healthy if they're not. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think um, getting over that sense of having to be perfect, if you, especially if you're in that kind of role. And look, if you really stop and think about it, most of us are in those roles at least at some point during every day, whether it's as parent, as friend, as boss, as colleague, as pastor, like whatever it is, we all have situations where we are there for someone else. And, you know, how it's like, I'm sick of this uh, analogy, but putting your, (laughs) your own oxygen mask on before the, Oh, it's true though. Yes. How can you support someone else if you're not supporting yourself? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's the other worn out analogy is that you can't pour from an empty cup. You gotta be filling yourself up, taking care of you. And it's, Gosh, look, I get it. It is so easy to neglect your own self-care. The world is busy. Yeah. If you're working or raising a family or doing both, you know, it is like it's the first thing to go, it seems like. But man, you look at studies, you listen to the experts, the happiest, the most successful people regularly focus on self-care. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah, I mean, how many podcasts are out there with like search an Apple for self-care and there's a gazillion results? Yeah. Like, why, why, why is that? Because we're not doing enough of it. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Um, that's why I try not to put it in any of the, the keywords for my shows. <laughs> uh, um, this, is, this is really valuable because, you know, I can imagine someone who's listening that isn't feeling like they're in the throes of depression or isn't having suicidal thoughts or isn't holding in or, or doesn't realize they may be holding in a trauma 
It's yeah. like, wow, you know, amazing story. Um, where's the next episode? You know, I've, I've listened, mm. I'm ready for the next one. This is quite, quite a bit more universal than it may seem on the surface. This isn't just for people who are going through those things that maybe that's a more heightened situation where there's value in it, but the applicability is really broad. We all do face this and you just happen to be, uh, an, an example of someone in a more extreme situation that maybe forced the issue that we should all be facing anyway. Yeah, I think if you never, and I pray that you never know what it's like to be in the midst of mental health crisis. Yeah. Um, but if that is true, you at least know what it's like to live through your very worst day, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. You know what it's like to be so completely overwhelmed that you think, what is the effing point? Like yeah. everybody's been at that point, whatever the end of the rope looks like for you, we've all been there. And unfortunately, if you haven't, you'll get there at some point, just live long enough. Um, and so, yeah, so having some practices in place to keep yourself healthy, knowing what boundaries look like, being willing to admit that you're not okay, all of those things are so important for all of us. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's maybe the, the, basic uh or the the simplest answer for advice for people is seek someone to talk to seek a, a therapist yeah. to work through things yeah block out time in your schedule for self-care um it, it's you know it's not enough to occasionally stop your busy lifestyle and take a walk or a hot bath but it's an ongoing process. It's a practice. Why we talk about meditation practices, yoga practices. You, you have to do it regularly. You have to reserve time in your schedule, just like you, you do for other appointments. You got to set aside time for you. So really important. Yeah. Yeah, really well said. Um, Steve, this is, uh, this is awesome. It's really... Like, you know, obviously I, I thought the story was really compelling, but I realized how much more universal it is. Um, so I, I'm very, very appreciative of having you on. Where can people find out more about your work and, um, you know, taking a, a bit more of that message that I, honestly is just very compassionate. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so if you go to catchingyourbreath.com, so my, my latest book, which came out last year, um, is called Catching Your Breath. And so that's also the name of my website, catchingyourbreath.com. Uh, you can find anything and everything you want to know right there. My social media links are right there on the homepage. Uh, you can click on Start Here at the top of the page and download my book, which is, is the conversation we've been having today. My first book was called From Pastor to a Psych Ward. And it's the lead up to the suicide attempt and the first year of recovery after. So uh, if, you, if you live with mental health or if you care about someone who has a mental illness and you want to know sort of some, some things to look for, ways to help or uh, tips on how to heal, that, that book is there. So it's catchingyourbreath.com. Fantastic. All right. Well, obviously we'll put all of that in the show notes. Um, but I just thank you so much for joining today and, and sharing your mind and really uh, and your story, but really amazing. I, I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling inspired myself at the moment, which is always a good sign. Good. Uh, yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a, uh, it's a heavy story. It's uh, you know, I do hope it's inspiring, but I know at times that you listen, it's like, Oh, Boy, I wish somebody had told me. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's it's always an honor to get to to share. So thank you very much. Well, and so I I always in the opening before you know something that maybe 
be mindful of the audience around you, listen with headphones, that kind of thing. I, I always throw that in, but um, you tell it in a really respectful way that um, I think most people will be able to take that in without it crossing a line of, of discomfort. Um, Good. So thank you for that. Um, Absolutely. Perhaps less profoundly, but equally important. Are you ready to help me close things out? Oh my gosh, let's do it. All right. Today's a new day. Let's go out and do it. Excellent. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you. Hey, wasn't that awesome? I I told you up front about the smile that you feel from Steve. Um, And I hope that you're smiling about yourself right now and you're seeing maybe a a space where you can be more honest, more direct, more clear with yourself because you deserve it. And Steve, I just feel like you really showed us that, that we all deserve that. And there's power in vulnerability not weakness in vulnerability. Such a beautiful message there. Um, If you haven't listened to the episode with Frank King, who's another survivor of suicide, uh, suicide attempts, I should say, um, and and a life with a lot of suicide around him, it's a great episode to go back and listen to if this one resonated with you. Just a very different, uh, different person, a different view on the whole thing, but no less powerful And look, this is a subject that is very prevalent, is very real for many of us, whether directly or through those around us. Uh, You know, Steve talked about his aunt. Uh, So even if he didn't go down the path that he did, he still would have, you know, had this in his life. Um, These are episodes we all need to hear. So I hope that this has left you reflecting on your honesty with yourself reflecting on your openness with those around you and the support that you seek, uh, the influences you brought into your life, and maybe a a point of change that you may see in yourself or value in making shifts for your own wellness, for your own well-being, for your own ability to protect yourself from those, those threats to your mental health, your stability, and frankly, your life in your own hands. Really, really important episode. This one, Frank's, and so many of the others in the show, if you're missing any of them, please do subscribe. This is what I try to bring you. I try to bring you shows that will impact your life, and I hope that this is one of those. So I'm going to close up there. Amazing guy, amazing message, amazing value in his message, and I hope it's left you reflecting as it has for me. So thank you for spending some time. Today is a new day for all of us, and it's important that we keep getting those new days. So please make those decisions that Steve talked about to support yourself in your own journey and support those around you in their similar journeys so we can all go out and do it. Thanks so much, everyone.